With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to Inside the Tour on the Tennis.com podcast. I'm Nina Pantic, and we're going to be joined by a special guest, Danielle Lau. I'm also joined by my co-host, Irina Falcone. Hey, guys. How's it going? So Danielle is coming off one of her best years on the tour. She's ranked at a high of number 169. She's been on tour for a couple years after finishing a stellar career at the University of Southern California, where she's a two-time All-American. And she's going to tell her story, kind of talk about her experiences in college and her experiences grinding on the ITF Pro Circuit and now kind of getting validation, looking ahead to playing the Grand Slams in 2019 and reflecting on her career, as well as talking about her book, The Invaluable Experience, which came out in 2013, a pretty amazing achievement for anyone. Hey guys. I've read your blog, thelittlegiantblog.wordpress.com, and you're pretty open and really fun. And like, I think it's amazing to see someone talk about like their career so candidly. But the US Open was kind of a turning point, right? Because you've had a good couple months. Mm-hmm. I qualified last year. And, um, you know, coming back to the Open and being able to yeah, to compete there again, it was like, an, you know, a dream come true happening again. And to repeat, and um, to be able to make it into the main draw, you know, with just kind of a different environment in terms of expectations, it was, yeah, it, it was a it was a different experience, but I was glad, you know, to have gotten through it. And um, it's great to, like, think about how you can, you know, repeat a performance like that versus, like, maybe last year when it happened, it, I felt like it was a bit of a fluke, maybe, like, all the stars aligned. And for it to happen again this year, it was... Yeah, it, it. I felt like it was more more rewarding than it was the previous year. Uh, as an American, to qualify in your home slam is pretty special. To qualify back-to-back and also play the same person again in the last final round of qualifying, I mean, that's very unlikely. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, kudos to you. It's not easy to come back and repeat that same performance. There's definitely a level a level of expectation that, you know, you have to come out and perform and pretty much do better than what you did the previous year. And so to come out and do that, that was, that's really awesome. So kudos to you. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, trust me, like I've, I felt the pressure, the, the last, the last round of qualifying, not so much. I mean, you have like that internal pressure that you've kind of done it before, but that's not as powerful as I feel like all the, all the external pressures, you know, I, I have friends that aren't really tennis people, just you know, following along and, and they knew I had played her last year. And so you got everyone texting me, Oh, like, this is totally in the bag. Like, Oh, like, you know, filling, filling your head with trying to fill your head with all these things that are totally not true. If you, if you knew like how this sport works, you know, every time you get out there and, and you play a match, you know, you start at zero, you you don't get any extra points for winning last time, or you you, there's no extra edge really, because we're all professionals and we're all making adjustments 
you know, every time we get on the court, especially if you've played somebody before. So I think actually playing them a second time is the tougher time around uh, because there are no no surprises. So I think it was the toughest part was managing the expectations and being able to put that aside during the match and and just, you know, going out there and playing playing that day and not so much the past. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just wondering. So we saw you on Tennis Channel uh, doing interviews after in the qualifying. How cool was it to have that experience? Because I know they didn't do it last year and you were there last year. You qualified last year. Was there a big difference, I think, in the detention you got and, and kind of just being, I mean, be like treated better and having more of a spotlight? For me, it came as a surprise. I didn't expect anyone to yank me off the court and... <laughs> And to to interview me, I actually was really unprepared. Like I've watched that interview a couple of times and it just kind of pains me how how much adrenaline and nervous energy I had just being on set with, you know, with all the bright lights and stuff. It's something I've never really experienced before. I normally just like play tennis, kind of do my thing, win, lose, you know, go to the locker room. So, yeah, it was new territory for me and definitely like super exciting. But also like looking back at the video, I'm like, gosh, maybe I should get a little bit better at like public speaking or like you know answering questions like tough questions especially when the adrenaline is running but uh yeah still still a great experience and um other than that I didn't really feel more special or not yeah I I didn't do any other interviews other than that but yeah it it was still cool one definitely one of the highlights of of the trip is because it was something I haven't done before dude getting used to public speaking and interviews just takes practice I mean it's it's watching yourself back the first time it's just you just want to you just want to die I can totally relate so I'm sure Irina has been through it as well like so painful (laughs) it's not that natural there's no one that's like oh yeah so smooth right away it takes like years I think I did my first ever not completely live commentating gig. Uh, I think the the first 15 promotional seconds of the show, we were on camera and we were able to rehearse one time. I was doing it with Steve Weissman, who is a complete professional. And when he started talking, I was just like, oh my God, I know nothing. I am so (laughs) inadequate. What am I doing here? I need to leave right now. Like it was just (laughs) such big shoes to fill. And I was just like, oh my God, I, these guys, it's not, it's not easy. Like commentating is not easy at all. And you had someone that was talking in your ear as you're trying to talk as well. And I'm just like, he's just too good. I I was so happy to be able to experience my first time with him in a sense, because I was like, wow, I have a long way to go. But he was like super nice and tried to give me pointers. And at one point he actually told me, he's like, that was pretty good. But um, you said I'm very excited like four times. Just, you know, bring it back down a notch. And you could tell that I was just so nervous to be doing that. Uh-huh. It's 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 just like tennis. It's just practice. Literally, it's the exact same situation. Like if you hit 1,000 forehands or 10,000 forehands, you'll be better. And, you know, and same. It just becomes natural. But that was a that was a college event. So she was... She was at the ITA uh, Fall Championships, I think. So it was all like a college. It was like kind of a, a college reunion, so to speak. Someone that's won before and, and all comes full circle. It was it was very weird uh, to be back in the college experience again, um, especially because I'm a yellow jacket and I was uh, commentating for a Georgia Bulldog and a player of <laughs> Michigan Wolverine. And I was re- wearing red and black. I was just like, oh my oh, gosh, no. are you serious? Yeah, I know. It was like I'd never, you know, <laughs> been a yellow jacket before. I was like, oh my gosh, you need to remember you can't wear these colors. I suggested red too. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Appreciate you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, I mean, Daniel, Danielle wore a lot of red in college. So you went to USC. I went to UCLA. We're supposed to be rivals. Mm-hmm. But 
I mean, your experience at USC was was great from what I can tell. I read your book and I, it sounds like you had a pretty solid four years. Do you feel like when you left, you were a much better player than when you started? I think college helped me to mature as as a person, maybe even, you know, as, as a as a professional, like to, you know, to take tennis and, and make it and really implement it into your life. Um, in terms of scheduling and being independent about it. So, you know, when you're when you're in college, you need to manage school, you need to manage tennis, your workouts and such. So it just it helped me a lot with time management to be at school and um, to also deal in those team pressure situations and having a coach walk you through you know, those those pressure moments. It it definitely helped a lot transitioning into the professional tour. But five years into it, I have realized that there is so much more to learn on the professional tour that you know, we, we never even tapped into in college. So yes, like it for sure was a great stepping stone for me and, and a great learning experience while I was at school to prepare me for, you know, what, what was next. And the part that it to me is like the most impressive is that you wrote a book kind of the year you graduated. I don't know how you could so quickly put together your thoughts on paper about something that was so raw and just happened and you kind of laid out, it's called The Invaluable Experience for anyone that hasn't read it. Um, she co-authored it with Rick Limpert. Um, so so what, what made you want to write the book and so quickly? Because, I mean, you just knocked it out, right? away it's kind of was it was it something you were working on the whole time yeah during my um during my senior year I was you know I was team captain and we we had a great team we had a vision to win a national title and so the whole team was was really invested we had great team chemistry and and so I, I really enjoyed that last year and and as I was going I told myself that you know, when this is over, I don't want to forget any of this. So I was journaling as I was going my senior year. And then when I when I finished that season, I kept journaling, kept blogging. And so I, I just had a lot of content really, you know, circulating in, in my mind and in my computer. So it, it was all on paper, just needed to be organized. And when I organized it into a blog, Rick found it uh, when he met me at my first professional event and he wanted to put it together, help me put it together. And we, we did it over the, the off season. And surprisingly, because it was just like an ebook and we weren't going to, you know, hard copy print it and, and do all the, the fancy things. It, it was, it was up pretty fast. I think we spent maybe a, a month just editing it and and putting putting something simple together. It was it was a small project. I didn't have really many expectations for it, but it's it's a great thing to look back on. I mean, the way I see it is for someone reading it now that I'm like out of college, I, I it's interesting to look back. But if I was a teenager or like any young person that isn't sure how college athletic works and being a student athlete, I think it's almost like a self help guidebook where it'll really make a difference. Have you ever have you got any feedback? Do you get like I don't know when someone downloads it? Do you get an email? Like how do you know that it's doing well or, or or how it's doing because I've never even thought about what it's like to have an ebook and and it's on Amazon and Kindle and everything so you just get a notification of being like someone's purchased your book yeah I think how it works is that Amazon just sends you a check um every few months telling you or or like you know giving you the money of whatever whatever or however much your book sold but to be honest Rick actually handles all of that and I don't really look at it too much and he'll just update me here and there because he knows I'm busy doing my own thing traveling and 
and training, practicing and such. So I, I'm not too sure about you know the numbers actually anymore, especially because it's been four years and he, he's the one that's always looking it up and sometimes he'll he'll just shoot me an email, tell me. But I, I think if you if you constantly like look on Amazon, I think if you're an Amazon author or something like that, you can tell like how how well it does. But other than that, the only feedback I get is someone will randomly come up to me and say like, I, I read your book and like I had my kids read it and it's great. Like we had so many questions about college tennis and this just kind of gave us a good feel, like an inside feel about, you know, what, what it, what it means if you, if you make, make the right choice and how to make the right choice and such. So yeah, it's, it's cool when, when I get personal feedback like that. That was one of my favorite things. Um, I was like, if there's someone that's really on the fence, whether or not they want to go to college or where they want to, or whether or not they want to turn pro, your book is just so perfect for that kind of like, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what to do. And one of my favorite quotes that I'm for sure going to use it somewhere soon was, um, the honest truth, though, is if you are shooting to be great at something, there are no specific directions on how to attain it. You have to find within yourself a unique way to be exceptional. And I mean, I'm I'm going to be honest, that's some really deep stuff right there. <laughs> Thank you. That, that, that was awesome. Um, and I don't know, I know that you listened to our podcast, so thank mm-hmm. you, um, with uh, Allison Risk. And one of the mm-hmm. things that we also talked about and you talked about in your book is comparing yourself to everyone else's result. And Mm -hmm. has it taken some time to kind of get to the point where you're like, you know, I have my own journey or did you learn that pretty early on whilst in college? I think I learned it early on. It's always a lot of these things that, you know, you, you say and you read and such, they're all concepts that you've you've heard of before, but actually taking to it and believing it and living it, I think are two different things. And in in college, it was pretty easy to, you know, just kind of worry about myself or our team. But when I got on the professional tour, it, it was like I needed to do that in a different scene. I needed to do that at a different level because it was just me, myself and I, I didn't have any camaraderie really like you don't have someone to bounce off like positive energy with because you're training for the most part by yourself at least like my setup that's how it is so it's really easy to look to you know look left and right and think like oh what is she doing like she's ranked higher than me she's doing better than me what am I not doing and um, when when I graduated college people were you know a lot of people were telling me that it would take three to four years to kind of figure out like what's your thing or how to do things and I, was, I, I didn't think I would stick around that long to try to figure it out but you know five years in I totally see what everyone's been saying you know I, I don't train like the person next to me and like I don't think on the court like the other person either so it's about you know, knowing what you need, finding yourself, and being able to be comfortable with what you have and, and how you're going to go about you know, doing something. And that just takes time and takes time to accept. And I and in college, it was a little bit easier because you had like a team culture. You had some boundaries to stay within. But I think uh, on the professional circuit, it's a little bit tougher because, yeah, you're responsible for yourself. It's really easy to, you know, watch TV and watch watch everyone else and try to pick up on things. And sometimes you pick up on good things and sometimes you pick up on bad things, too. It's just a matter of you filtering everything. Um, I, I was just going to say, I find that relatable in any industry because, I mean, I haven't played competitive tennis in years, but in in 
in journalism and broadcast and in sports coverage, you have the exact same feeling sometimes. When you see someone doing something, you're like, oh, should I be doing that? Or should I have done this? Or should I have tried to like make this YouTube channel? Or should I have been, you know, writing about this before or covering this before? And I think it's relatable across so many different um, careers, not just in sports, which is what makes kind of the way you are speaking and the way that you write so interesting because it's relatable across like, it's not just like, hey, if you play tennis, this will make sense to you. It's like way bigger than that, which is hard to do because sometimes you get so into your bubble. But then in college also, I feel like the difference is in college, you're like, okay, I've got four years, then I'm done. But once you got on the pro tour, were you thinking to yourself, okay, if I'm not making this much money or, or, or making it even or this ranking in four years, I'll be done? Or did you think to yourself a day at a time, a month at a time, a tournament at a time? Was there a set, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to go get a job? I think I think a couple things. So when I started out, I gave myself maybe two years to get my feet wet and see and just evaluate in two years, you know, where, where am I at? In, in two years, I, I saw a little improvement in my ranking. I was maybe like top 400. I was around like 350 range. And the next question is like, do you still love it? Do you still enjoy training? Do you still enjoy traveling? Because it really is a lot of sacrifice. And to have put in all that, that sacrifice and not enjoy the competition, that's a tough way to live. And definitely, I don't think it's I don't think it's worth it at, you know, being, being where I was, at least, at least for me. But at that point, I still really enjoyed playing. I really enjoyed waking up and having a purpose and a goal. So, so I kept going and I was sniffing, you know, some Grand Slam qualifying and, and that was my goal. I, I told myself, Danielle, if you can make a Grand Slam qualifying, you are totally overachieving in life. Like, so uh, when, when I made the US Open last year, I was like, wow, like it can't get better than this. And if I can continue to keep making grants as I'm qualifying, that'd be so awesome. Like what a dream come true. And then when I made the main draw, then it's like, wow, like dreams are even bigger now. So I guess like with these subtle improvements and like these subtle um, tokens of gratification, it just kind of kept me going. And there were times when, you know, I'd get a little hurt, injured, have a streak of bad losses and really thought about quitting. But just search, you know, deep, deep in myself and ask myself, do you still really love to play tennis? And and the answer was always yes. So. I, I do know though that you can't you can't continue to love it as much if the results aren't there. I think I'm kind of at that point where you want to see the work amount to something and give you potential to experience something you haven't experienced before. And that's not to take anything away from people who are outside the top 200 or outside the top 300. It's just for me, I've been there, I've I've done that, and if I don't see myself improving anymore from in the next two years, then I think I'll know that it's time to hang it up. But as of now, I still feel like I'm improving and I still have like that natural curiosity to to keep improving and to keep growing with the sport. So that's that's how I pretty much decide. It's kind of an internal thing. I think with a lot of people when they know it's it's time, it's time, it's time to leave. Uh, so far, I, I think my, my future is still with tennis and still inside the sport. That's something so important that you just said about every single time I asked myself whether I still love tennis, the answer was always yes. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've noticed quite a few girls this year. I don't know what it is about this year, but they're retiring. You know, Radwanska just retired. I know Vinci retired in Rome this year. I think Viznina is putting it 
put the rackets away. Barbara Stritseva said that this was her last Fed Cup tie. Safarova, same thing. Like, there's definitely a point where you wake up in the morning and you're like, mm, I really just don't want to go on the court anymore and sacrifice my body. And that was one of the things where Dwanska actually said. She's like, I cannot continue to train the way that my body is used to training. And mm-hmm. from what you've said, you're like, you know, I've been there before. I've done that. You know, if you don't continue to see results, yes, it can be very tough on the tour. It's not going to be every single week where you're like, oh, I won more matches every single week. Even number ones in the mm-hmm. world, they'll still have their moments. But yeah, I just I find that so important that it's whoever's listening, whether or not, like you said, you know, whether in tennis, whether it's anything in life, that's just the one thing that you have to continuously ask yourself, do I enjoy doing what I'm doing every single day? And is the sacrifice worth it? Definitely. 100%. I mean, right now you're like in a pretty good position, Danielle, because you're probably, I mean, I assume you're going to go to the Australian Open because you're going to make that qualifying cutoff. And that's that'll be your first time playing it, right? Yeah, it, it will be. And um, I, I had a I had a little tough time last year uh, at around at around this time because I was on the cusp of like getting into Aussie Open and I actually Irina was there uh, last year and we and I I was one out of the qualifying cut waited around for a couple of days did not get in and so I I spent like three weeks there pretty much I played one tournament I played one of the warm up tournaments but I spent three weeks there waiting to to play my first Aussie Open and and didn't end up getting in and that was one of like it was it was a slap in the face a little bit. I worked so hard. At, and last year was before this year. It was one of the best years I've ever had. And I thought I had kind of earned my way to to start playing more slams. And I and I didn't get into Aussie Open. Starting off the year like that, it was tough. And being able to, to finish this year inside the top 200 and, you know, earn my way for sure into Aussie Open qualities. It, yeah, it's 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 definitely pretty cool. It's validation, really, at this point. Yeah, yeah, it it is, and and definitely super excited to go there and and play the tournament. I wanted to play last year, but just didn't get a chance to. I remember last year, um, your boyfriend was actually there, and uh, I got to talk with him a little bit. And I, I think there were a few other players. I know Jacqueline Keiko, I know Allie Kick were all there trying to see whether or not they were going to get into the tournament, and. Honestly, as a tennis player that wants to participate, I don't think there's a worse feeling other than losing, maybe. But to be at a tournament watching players practice, warm up for their matches, and you're fairly sure that you're not going to get in. I mean, that's definitely a tennis player's nightmare right there. Yeah, the the day of qualifying, I sat around and watched in the lounge and watched all the matches go on until the last round of matches. And that was pretty painful. And, And I'll never forget it. But, you know, when, when I sat on the plane going back home, I told myself, you can choose to let this set the tone for your year or you can really yeah, just like get back on the horse and, and try to make something of it, use it as motivation to make sure that you're in this event next year. And what is to me like the, the craziest thing about that, like your story with the Australian Open, is that you flew to Australia. Like it's not like you just like flew to South Carolina. I mean, that's commitment and, and things that a lot of fans don't see because all you're watching is like the Novak Djokovic's and Serena Limbs. But like someone flew to Australia, that's like 24 hour journey and then didn't get in. That's just so savage. And now you get to go and you know you're in and it's like, oh, it just feels so good for you. 
Yeah, no, thank you. It, it it definitely was a trip. And I I think I felt worse that I had my mom and my boyfriend there too, because they made the trip to see my first Aussie Open, but it, it just didn't happen. So I'm not sure if I felt worse that I didn't play or the fact that I had people there waiting to watch and and then it not happening. What's what's the support like? I mean, the fact that your mom and your boyfriend came with you is, is incredible. I mean, what's the support been like, I guess, when you decide to turn pro after college and kind of as the years have gone on, have you felt a lot of um, family support and coaching support and all that? For sure. Uh, with, within within my own family, my, my mom and my dad, they've been and my sister, they've been super supportive. Anyone kind of outside, maybe my cousins and my aunts and uncles, they're supportive, but I don't think they really understand what what this really entails. Maybe some of them may may even think, oh, I'm, I'm not sure if she's kind of grown up yet because I've been playing tennis for a very long time. And um, so, you know, since, since I was competing at eight, nine years old, they probably feel like I've been doing the same thing since I'm eight or nine years old. It's just like on a more advanced level. But my parents have been super supportive. And, and I think, and it's not that they're, that they thought, you know, oh, Danielle, you're going to, playing grand slams and uh, we we should definitely support you because you know that would be awesome it, it'd be you know all the glitz and the glamour and, and whatnot it'd be so rewarding I think they really just supported me when I came out of college because they trusted that I still loved the game and that I wasn't done playing tennis yet I think showing my commitment to the sport how often I practice how often I train how I like eat sleep and breathe tennis like for them it's they're just happy to help fuel my dream because I really still do enjoy it. Um, in terms of my coaches, they've been incredible too. I've I've worked with Cal Moranin for a really long time since I was 15. And he 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 felt that I still loved it enough to continue after college too. And uh, I just I just hired um, a, another coach, uh, Andy Gers, to travel with me this year, and um, he he's all on board, and he's real fun to be around, and everyone's super supportive. That in the closest like inner circle that I have, my boyfriend, like he he's got to be the most the most active on sofa score of everybody else because he mm-hmm. just loves looking at results, stats. I think it's the fantasy football thing in him, but he just. He, he really geeks out on it and he's super supportive. And so, yeah, I definitely don't think I can get through those tough losses and those tough times without knowing that I have people behind me wanting me to do well and supporting me, not for the success, but just for the for the sake of like the journey and, and you know, and the love for the game. I feel like I got to give Nam a shout out um, since he has, you know, a Guinness World Record. Nam, uh, Danielle's boyfriend, actually has a Guinness World Record for a four-man costume marathon, like the quickest four-man marathon in costume ever. And it was, I believe, in Berlin, was it? Yes. Yes, correct. Okay. And it was a caterpillar. So for, <laughs> for all those there that like Guinness World Records. I mean, it's not every day that you can say, hey, I have a Guinness World Record. I mean, for whatever it may be. But yeah, I, I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I legit thought that you were lying when you said it the first time. And you showed me video and I saw the proof. That's insane. I bet it's, you didn't expect crazy. to hear that one today, Nina. <laughs> I can't imagine running a marathon normally, let alone like as the middle rung of a Caterpillar costume. That's brutal. But on that note, though, okay, so Daniel Lau, full-time tennis player, you're going to go to Australian Open, um, ranked inside top 200. But what other, I mean, I feel like you've become like 
a full round individual who wrote a book and has a blog and, and all this stuff, what kind of like stuff do you do off court or other hobbies or other things that you can geek out on that people might not know about you? What, what do I like to do? I actually like to go running with my boyfriend and his friends when, when they're available or when our schedules, schedules match up. That, that's pretty cool. Other than that, I really love to bake. That's what I was hoping she would say. I'll admit it. <laughs> you were egging her on, no pun intended. I was like, how do I bring up macarons without being a psychopath? <laughs> I actually did a batch a couple of days ago. Oh, we were on that. We were all over that. So how did yours turn out? So we got obsessed with making French macaroons. Um, and then I went to Irina's house like a few weeks ago and we made a few batches and like we failed a couple times and then eventually got to the end. And it was, I mean, it turned out, I think the last batch was incredible, but it took us a couple tries. Yes, definitely. It's a lot of trial and error for sure. How'd yours turn out? They, they turned out great this time. My mom was at Costco the other day and she Normally, Costco, our Costco does not sell almond flour, but she knows how obsessed I am about perfecting the macarons. So when she saw it, she, she was like, okay, I know I don't like you taking over the kitchen, but I will buy this for you. And when I had the first, the first like four hour block where I had time, I, I went, I went after it in the kitchen and I was, I was telling my mom, she she was like, "What? You don't need to make it now. Thanksgiving is next week." And I was, and I told her, you know, if you haven't done it in a while, you got to practice, just like in anything else. So I was just practicing in the kitchen, making sure I had the recipe right. I brought my scale out and was being like super OCD, like down to the gram with with all the measurements, with the egg whites and and stuff. And and they turned out perfect. And I'm I'm so glad because in in April, the last time I made them, they didn't turn out too great. I'm not sure if it was the weather. Maybe I didn't use fine enough almond flour because I was making my own. Um, but but yeah, so so this time they turned out great. So I'm pretty confident with the holidays coming up now. That is so, so funny. We were doing the exact same thing, <laughs> the literal exact same thing. We were both like trying to figure out what went wrong. Uh -huh. And then Irina is also like that. She was like measuring things down to like the gram and going super OCD about it. Well, I'm like, it'll be fine. Just throw it in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah she was just grabbing the flour and she's like ah that looks like about a cup and i was like no you cannot do that when it comes to macaroons or macarons apparently that's the way that you're supposed to say it. so yeah i saw your post about it the other day when you were like i've never been so excited to see feet and when yeah because we they were, were even yeah and when we were making ours like that was nina's whole thing she was just like i gotta see the feet i gotta see the feet <laughs> <laughs> I love this. It's such a unique obsession. Baking is just oh, it's just so it's so heartbreaking sometimes. Yeah, especially with that recipe with doing macarons, you have to wait like two hours before you could see if you actually did it right. With everything else like cake, cookies and such, you can taste the batter and pretty much know if you got it down. But with the macaron, you have to wait for it to dry. You have to wait for it to rise. And sometimes even though your batter looks good and they come out of the oven, you're like, why does it look, why do they look like mountains? There are no feet. This is terrible. Oh, it's so hard. It's, there's so many steps and there's so many places to fail. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so I just want to talk about something else. So in the book, you mentioned um, looking into like real jobs, what you would have done. And like, would you have worked in asset management and like finance? Was that what you were thinking about? Yeah, I was interviewing with uh, with BlackRock and a couple 
other companies outside of asset management. I had I had a full offer at at Aflac, the insurance company, and um, Mass Mutual. And now I'm starting to draw a blank on what else I was going to do. I felt like it was so long ago. But yes, I was I was looking at getting a real job, but thankfully nothing nothing that I really wanted came came about and I was still dabbling on the tennis court a bit and still wanted to hold a racket so so here I am I have a full-time job of working out as my friends would say working out and chasing around a tennis ball (laughs) that's a pretty good job yeah (laughs) it's not a bad job and were you always planning on staying in California is that kind of the plan yeah I, I I don't I don't think I I would have moved anywhere really. I, I don't think my parents would have liked it either. And and yeah, I just love California so much. There's there's just so much variety here, and I, I I can't see myself leaving. Fair enough. But I also want everyone to know that your Twitter handle is incredible, and you deserve more followers. <laughs> and it's at the little giant. The original, the little giant. Yes. But like another thing I find interesting about both of you is you guys are the same height. Is it, <laughs> is it interesting? Uh, fun fact. I mean, I just feel like tennis players, everyone thinks they're these giants mm-hmm. that are six foot Amazonian women who have all this power and stuff. And you guys have had to like figure life out on a tennis court from like a normal size, a normal size human being. Um, so the fact that your Twitter is a little giant is incredible. Is it something that you've accepted? Like, I don't know, like just being more crafty on court, you guys both kind of are, right? So like, I kind of find that more fun to watch, right? The craft is within us, Nina. <laughs> we had to make up for our lack of height with our craft and, and variety. Reach. And, uh, you know, Danielle's one of those players. She's got a lot of slice. She's got a lot of variety, likes to come in. She's got touch, feel. I mean, yes, I can definitely relate to her style of game. <laughs> But I mean, don't get me wrong, by all means, I would love like a 125 down the tee every single time. Um, down but, break point. Yeah, you know, I'd like to be able to just <laughs> pop that whenever I needed it. But um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some things that tall girls can't do as well as we can. For example, when people say stay low, I'm like, I'm already there. <laughs> so... There's not really a problem when it comes to that. I think I think for sure with our stature, I think you see the game in a different dimension too, and you have to because you you don't have that that extra easy effortless power. You you need to see like the court differently, the trajectory, just a whole bunch of variety in the game that maybe people neglect a bit because they're they're so powerful and they're so strong and they're so fixated on on that and on, on getting the ball by somebody. Irina and I have had to figure out different ways to win points, a little bit more creative ways to win points. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, one of my favorite compliments someone told me once is that I do really well with finding all the really crazy dimensions of the court from a mathematical point of view. It's like <laughs> there's really like, oh, no, she's going to go to like the 80 percent of the court that probably should the ball should be hit at. But no, I'm going to go to the 20 percent little corner because I'm like, uh, yeah, I can hit that shot. It's probably very unlikely that any other player would even think to hit that shot. But for some reason, let's hit it there. And, uh, <laughs> you know, as a professional, I think it's very common. You hit it once. You're like, oh, I'm going to be able to hit it every single time there, which is not always the mm-hmm. case. But yeah, I think we definitely have to use 
more aspects of the court than another player would. I, I remember when I was playing against Venus Williams. I mean, she's slightly taller than me. And same thing, you know, I had to use every single inch of the court. I just, I couldn't give her what she wanted. And I knew that if I used my strengths, it was going to deter her from using hers. Perfect. Couldn't have said it better. (laughs) (laughs) When you look ahead to 2019, I mean, I feel like with the fact that you're at your career high ranking right now, are you the most inspired you've ever been for a season when you're going forward, especially because of the Australian Open? Um, You're probably going to get into the French Open, maybe Wimbledon for the first time. I mean, these are all like really big things that could happen. Do you think about that a lot? right now as you're getting ready are you off completely like what's the next few weeks look like for now I'm, I'm off for another week or so but I think maybe two two or three days after I played my last match you know my, my last match was a loss so I, I kind of wanted to detach from that a little bit and but two three days after I was thinking about you know what's next and and planning and I, I've never been so excited Yes, it's it's the it's the idea that I'm going to get to do and play all these tournaments that I've never gotten to play before that I've always wanted to play. But I think it's also emotionally and mentally where I'm at right now. I think this year was a huge learning experience, not only like on the tennis court, but internally, like for myself. And and so just just being super excited and being in a good space to to want to improve and to want to get at it and and be better. Yeah, definitely this this off season is probably going to be the most fun and, you know, the most into it I've I've probably ever been and and so happy that that I'm I'm at this I'm at this place right now and just going to try to stay present with it and yeah, just just go at it as as hard as I can. I I wish you the best of luck. I'm excited to see how it pans out. Okay, that's it for this episode of Inside the Tour on the Tennis.com podcast. I've been Nina Pantic. And I've been Irina Falcone. And we've been joined by Daniel Lau, our special guest. Thanks for coming on and joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. This was super fun. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.